There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Saturday, the 12th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, what's happening in Washington? We're still dealing with a global pandemic, political gridlock, and Trump refusing to concede defeat in the election that he lost. But we're all right. You're back. How, how are you? How is Berlin? I'm pleased to be back. And Berlin is currently heading into a new hard lockdown. So <laughs> I don't have good news to report. But yeah, basically, Germany, previously the model example of a good response to coronavirus has lost control of the numbers. And even the UK now has a lower infection rate than Germany. And so Merkel did a big kind of emotional, forceful speech in the Bundestag on Wednesday saying, we need to take this more seriously. And the heads of the 16 German federal states are starting to impose tougher lockdowns. But basically, it looks like we're going to be in a, in a properly hard lockdown before Christmas. So <laughs> happy Christmas. <laughs> Great. Well, neither one of us then has good news to report about the cities that we're in. <laughs> but that's all right. We have a great guest. So that's good news. But before we get to, get to him, what moment from last week do you think will go down in history or were you particularly surprised by or give us a moment? So from where I am in Berlin, the most significant moment of the last week was on Wednesday, as we record, when Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, so the British Prime Minister and the European Commission President, met in Brussels for a socially distant dinner in which they failed to close the gap between the UK and the EU on the final stages of the Brexit negotiation. Britain left the EU earlier this year, but it remains in a transition period in which its relationship with the EU has remained basically static. But that's going to end at the end of this month, so 31st of December. And then basically it's going to become a lot tougher for both, for both sides, but particularly for the UK in terms of trade, in terms of travel, in terms of all the sorts of things where being part of the EU was beneficial. And von der Leyen and Johnson couldn't do a deal, particularly because they, they've they negotiated agreements on most of the big issues. They're about 95% of the way there, but the final 5% are difficult subjects, including, and most importantly, the so-called level playing field, whereby Britain is supposed to kind of match the regulatory standards of along with tax and state aid rules of the rest of the EU, even outside of the club. 
And Johnson doesn't like that idea because obviously the point of Brexit was in Britain to have it, you know, regain its sovereignty and become more independent. But the EU would say, well, look, if you want to have totally free trading relations with us as a big economy right outside of our borders, you need to sign up to our standards. And the UK has agreed not to kind of back down on any of the current standards. But the big question is what will happen if the EU, for example, adds some new social right. or environmental regulation? And, th- and then the question is, it's difficult because from the EU point of view, well, you know, the UK can't kind of just duck out of that and remain a de facto member of the single market with open access. But from the point of view of London, well, you know, Britain voted for Brexit, it voted to be independent. And so it needs to have a kind of the, the chance to kind of opt out of those sort of changes. And so... You know, you're, you're, you're pitting two very fundamental instincts against each other, the British vote for, for independence and sovereignty versus the European insistence on a kind of common set of rules if you want to be part of the system. And so at the moment, a no deal looks more and more likely. Anyway, Emily, what was your moment of the week? Well, my moment of the week, the stakes aren't quite that high, but I think it was. it's nevertheless worth noting that, as I think I said on a, on a previous episode of this podcast, Biden came out with his, the pick for the person he intends to nominate to be Secretary of Defense. Now, this was a contentious one for a number of reasons. For weeks or months, the expected pick was Michelle Flournoy, who oversaw policy in the Pentagon under Obama, was widely considered to be one of the most qualified, if not the most qualified people for the job, and would have been the first woman to run the Pentagon to be Secretary of Defense. But she was under a lot of, she came under criticism from progressives in particular, because she, her analysis shop, uh, West Exec, which she co-founded with, among others, Tony Blinken, Biden's pick to be Secretary of State, counts among its clients, a major defense contractor. Long story short, Flournoy was not picked. Instead, Biden went with Lloyd Austin, who was head of U.S. Central Command. He will be the first Black person to run the Pentagon. The CBC, that is the Congressional Black Caucus, apparently was urging Biden to to pick a Black person for this position. Some are noting that the criticism of her with respect to the defense industry can also be said of him because he joined the board of Raytheon once he stepped down from Central Command. The part of this that I have found really unfortunate, not the picks, but the discussion surrounding it, is that it becomes about like, well, we could have had the first woman, yes, but we have the first Black person. And it ends up being like this debate about people who are traditionally underrepresented in these roles when there are many top positions and they they typically go to white men. So that was something that I thought worth noting for the past week. I'd like to briefly throw you one extra question, which is, I, I would like to know, having not sort of spoken to you on this podcast since before the US election, do you tend to think that Biden has lived up to the hopes of progressives who thought that he could be a, okay, you know, last time we spoke, the question was, hey, what about that Trump second term? But, you know, Trump is now out, Biden's going to be the next president. There was this big question before when we last spoke about where the Biden would be a genuinely progressive president or whether he would just be a not Trump president. And I would be very keen to hear, now that I'm back on the podcast, where you now stand with that question. You know, do you think that Biden is just, okay, let's assume we think it's a good thing that Biden won the election. I think most people who are listening to us probably agree with that. But do we think that because he's not Trump or do we think that because there will be genuinely progressive things to come out of the White House under Biden? It's a great question. And the reason it's a great question is that it doesn't have an answer yet. 
So if we look specifically at foreign policy, which is what I'm going to do because it's the subject that I wrote a piece on this week for the newstatesman.com on this very subject, right? Like, will Biden have a progressive foreign policy? The jury is still very much out. You know, Biden did not pick known progressives for any of the positions that he's announced so far. He has instead tended toward experienced, well-known foreign policy professionals. And there's a mix of responses to that from, from the left, right? Some people say, look, it's going to be you know, back to business as usual in Washington, D.C. You know, Biden announced the world America is back. And there are many people in this country, and I'm sure around the world, who don't necessarily think that that's a good thing. What I will say is that Blinken, who I mentioned, was one of the people over the course of the campaign who reached out to progressives to, to for example, former Bernie Sanders supporters and tried to listen to them and bring them on board. I think that there are going to be some issues on which we actually do see cooperation. You know, the U.S. pulling support from the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, I think, is one. I think that climate change could be another, although we see, we'll see we see how far Biden goes. Certainly the fact that he's appointed the first ever person to just focus on climate change to the National Security Council is a promising start, even if that choice being John Kerry has won both praise and criticism. I think there are other issues. Like one of the reasons that the defense secretary was such an important pick is because one thing progressives really want to see is a decrease in the defense budget. Mm-hmm. We'll still see if Biden and Austin, if he's confirmed, do that. So I, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that in some ways, yes, in some ways, there's a large gap to close between Biden and the left. Yeah, yeah. And we will be covering all of that on the newstatesman.com over the coming months. And we're delighted to be joined for this week's episode by Mark Lowcock, who is the UN's top humanitarian official. He is the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. He's also head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. And he was previously the Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Development in the UK. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Thanks very much. So I want to start off with a sort of counterfactual in that many of us worried at the start of the corona virus pandemic that the biggest impact would be felt in the global south on the grounds that this was a easily transferable virus that spread among people in close proximity. We all know, you know, in the global south, you have cities with people living close together. You don't have the ability to social distance. You don't have necessarily states with the capability to create furlough programs. You don't necessarily have the ability to test people in great numbers. And yet it seems to me looking, you know, at, for example, Africa, where the current viral load seems to be less than in the UK alone, that the global south has kind of got off quite lightly. But have we misunderstood that somehow? No, I think you're right about that. And you're right that lots of people had the worries that you summarised there. But it looks as though the virus itself and the disease is not the main impact of the pandemic on these poorer countries. And there are theories about why that is. Obviously, their populations are younger, and this seems to be a virus that affects older people more. Lots of people are speculating about whether different temperatures make a difference. It is the case, you know, for, for quite large populations in the global south, that uh, they're living in rural areas where population densities are lower. People spend less time in very cooped up cramped conditions if they're, for example, in rural Africa. So there's some theories about why this is. But I think it is still the case that the global south is worse affected by the pandemic 
through its indirect consequences than any other part of the world is. We're already seeing a big increase in extreme poverty. We're seeing reductions in life expectancy. Most of the children who haven't had an education this year are in the global south. We are faced with the return of famines. We're seeing the risk of doubling of HIV, malaria, tuberculosis. And so the loss of life as a result of the pandemic, I'm afraid, is indeed going to be bigger than in the global south than in the rest of the world, but not for the reasons that lots of us thought at the beginning. Yeah. And what's causing those secondary effects? Is it is it because demand is declining or is it because, I don't know, international organisations are less involved or is it because the global south has been sort of ineffectively doing lockdowns when it didn't need to? What would explain those factors? Well, I think there's a combination of reasons. I mean, the first thing is, These countries are all affected by the huge contraction of the global economy. You know, in the 2008-9 financial crisis, which is the last thing people remember as an economic crisis, the size of the global economy actually only fell by one-tenth of one percent. The pandemic has taken five percent off the global economy. So it's, it's hugely bigger and it has affected the poorest countries just as it's affected richer countries. So they've lost their commodity earnings, they've lost their tourism revenues, they've lost the money that lots of their citizens who were working overseas were sending home. So that's been a huge effect. They have also, in some cases, instituted lockdown measures, which have affected people's ability to make a living. And then the third thing, which I have to say is the thing that's most shocking of all to me, is They have not had the kind of support that has been provided to them in previous crises. Humanitarian agencies have been able to raise funds, like the the organisations whose work I coordinate. We've raised probably $20 billion this year, and we've certainly eased the suffering of lots of people. But the leading countries in the world, through the G20, as it's called, and the OECD, have not given the marching orders to the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, to help these very fragile countries this time in the way they did in 2008-9. And that's very surprising because lots could be done at very little cost to the richest countries, certainly in the short term. Could you talk a bit more about what wealthier countries could do to help poorer countries? And you said it was surprising. Why Why did you think that they would step in to help? And why do you think they didn't? So in terms of what to do, this is a little bit technical. So forgive me if it takes me a bit of time to explain it in in lay terms. But there's a number of things that they should do. Firstly, the IMF controls this form of currency, basically, called special drawing rights. And it can that is a combination of the world's leading currencies, the dollar, the euro, and so on. And the IMF can issue special drawing rights to all its members based on a formula. And those countries can then exchange the special drawing rights for convertible currencies. Now, hundreds of billions of dollars of special drawing rights were issued in the financial crisis. And what should happen now is a large issuing of them, but there should also be a second step, which is that those countries who don't need their allocation should recycle them to the very poorest countries. 
the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, has said pretty clearly to her shareholders, look, this is what we should do. We did it last time, we should do it again. So that's the first thing, and it hasn't happened. The second thing is that the shareholders of the World Bank should essentially get, try to get the World Bank to play a much stronger role than they've asked it to play so far in dealing with the indebtedness problem the very poorest countries have now. What needs to happen is both a rescheduling of debts, that's agreement that debt should be paid over a longer period, and a write-down of debts. That's a, essentially a reduction in the level of debt. And that happened during the course of the 1990s, where lots of countries got heavily indebted. It's more complicated now because there's a broader range of creditors. China, in particular, is a big creditor, and there are private sector creditors. So they need to be brought into the picture as well. And then the, the next thing the World Bank and, and uh, the other regional development banks should do is reorient their support to focus it more on the very poorest countries. And that means probably doing a bit less for middle-income countries, but a bit more for, you know, those where poverty is most acute and growing most. And that, again, requires guidance from the shareholders. So why haven't these things happened? Well, it's essentially a commentary on the state of geopolitics. The leading countries are finding it harder to collaborate to support weaker countries, but also, frankly, in, in support of their own interests in the longer term. It, this is What's happening in the poorer countries is very bad news in the longer term for leading countries as well. So it's really a, a failure of global governance of the leading countries, the world's biggest economies, which includes the G20 and the OECD, that they haven't taken these measures. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether as a new administration takes office in the US, it is possible to make more progress on those what should be pretty straightforward issues. Well, this brings us nicely to what I was going to ask you next, which is you gave a speech at the Brookings Institute earlier this week, and you you outlined the, I mean, truly terrible forms of devastation that have that have hurt everyone in the world this year, but in particularly those and those countries who already had less. And you say all this can be avoided. Working together to find and fund solutions is the only way out. And not to sound cynical, but given everything that you just <laughs> that you just said, and also given the vaccine nationalism that we heard about this year. How optimistic are you that countries will pull together and, and work together in, in 2021? Well, if you're doing my job, it's not so much a question of being optimistic or pessimistic. It's about trying to persuade people of the right thing to do. A lot of positive things have happened. So we've had very positive support for our global humanitarian response plan for COVID. We've been able to get basic true facts about the virus to more than a billion people through what the UN has been able to do. And in a time of fake news and misinformation, that's important. We've been able to get some help with meeting daily bills for food and so on, worth $2 billion to, to dozens of countries around the world. We've been able to improve water and sanitation systems and health services for 75 million people. So we've been able to do some things and the US and European countries and some others have contributed to that. But we really need to see some progress on these wider economic issues, as well as sustaining the humanitarian support of the, of the type I've just described going into 2021. There's a very serious risk in 2021 that the most extreme version, in a way, of humanitarian suffering and human failure, which is famines, Famines are a terrible thing, which used to be a scourge 
across the planet for almost the whole of human history. Famines are back now, and there's a serious risk that we'll have large-scale famines in potentially multiple places during the course of 2021. And that's preventable. You know, the era we're living in is the one in which there's more food available per person on the planet than at any other time in human history. But preventing, you know, the tragedies of Yemen and South Sudan and parts of the Sahel and northeast Nigeria turning into massive loss of life through famines is going to be a real struggle and will require different decisions from key stakeholders. Is there anything that the West can do to sort of preempt those famines? Well, the most important thing to do in the short run is to finance the relief operation. You know, the reason why famine, we're on the brink of famine in Yemen, for example, is that at the beginning of the year, UN agencies were feeding 13 million people a month and providing millions of people with health services and clean water and so on while the war raged. Because we've essentially run out of money, we're now giving food to only 9 million people a month. And those 4 million missing people, they haven't suddenly got rich and you know, finding their own way. They are starving. They're being starved. So the first thing is funding the relief operation. The second thing is much bringing much more influence to bear on the men with guns and bombs to silence the guns and to get serious about negotiating peace. Famine is a problem that, that only exists in conflict zones now. So you have to basically relieve people suffering, but then you have to solve the underlying problem as well. And Western countries still are in a position to exert influence over some of the protagonists in a way that would ease the scale of the problem. Is, is it, do you think, a case that governments are simply too tied up with their own coronavirus responses? You know, you look at the UK, you look at Germany, where I am, you look at the US, where Emily is. These are all countries that are primarily concerned with dealing with their own pandemic responses. Do you think that the world is being, or at least the rich world's attention is being distracted from these problems by its own management of the pandemic? Well, I think the rich countries are right each to be spending 99% of their resources and time and effort on their own domestic dealing with the pandemic. And, you know, it's very interesting that the rich countries have thrown $20 trillion into protecting their own citizens and economies and businesses. And they were right to do that. That was the right thing to do. But along with spending 99% of their time on protecting their own economies, I do think it is not just generous, but also smart to spend 1% of your effort in, in recognition of the fact that this is actually quite a small planet and yeah. problems spread and your own interests are best served by protecting other places as well. So I, I think the real issue is the situation we face in the nature of global geopolitics, if you like. It's, it's the sense that richer countries have not lived up to the knowledge that their policy communities all really have that working to support others isn't just generosity it's about what we need to secure ourselves and allow ourselves to prosper as well and that's the message that needs to get across and it's interesting again listen to some of the things the incoming administration in the u.s is saying about that and we'll see what that turns into Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. You 
spoke to our colleague and sometime co-host of this podcast, Ido Bach, for a piece in The New Statesman. It ran under the headline, the UN's Mark Lowcock, vaccine nationalism is a complete delusion. And I want to speak to you about the delusion that is vaccine nationalism. But first, I want to speak to you about an international phenomenon, which is that this pandemic has been particularly hard on, on women. Ido wrote on women's rights too, the picture is bleak, and then quoted you as saying, it's women and girls who are paying the biggest price because we're seeing increases in gender-based violence. There's a seven or eight-fold increase in the number of women calling hotlines for help in the countries where we work. I don't even know how to phrase this question, but I guess what I will will attempt is to get you to tell us a bit about what you think countries individually and collectively can do about the fact that in terms of gender-based violence, in terms of having to drop out of the workforce, in terms of losing their jobs, that this pandemic has been hard on the women of the world. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And it's disturbing and shocking and frightening, actually, to observe what's happening. And this is not just an issue in fragile countries or the global south. This is happening everywhere. And, you know, I'm afraid what extreme crisis reveals is, to be very blunt about it, the difficulty sometimes that men have, I mean, this violence is largely perpetrated by men, right? The difficulty that men have in controlling their behavior in times of stress and anxiety and maybe people living together in cramped conditions and all of those problems, all the things the pandemic has wrought. And it's always the case that women and girls suffer first and worst in humanitarian crises. You know, there are consistently, and this has always been true in history, actually, atrocities against women and girls, sometimes deliberate decisions on how to prosecute conflicts and wars. But it is particularly striking, I think, when, you know, it is the case there has been material progress made across much of the world in empowering women and girls and improving the rights of women and girls over the last two or three generations, particularly in the recent period in some of the countries where I work, it is striking to see this reversion during the current pandemic. We um, have been trying to mobilise more support to run, you know, helplines and and medical services and safe spaces and all those kinds of things. And it's been more of a struggle than I would have liked, to be honest with you, in getting support to do those things. I run something called the Central Emergency Response Fund, which is a fund worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which finances normally food and shelter and health services and so on. But for the first time ever, I've given a grant of $25 million from that fund to UN Women and the UN Population Fund so that they can work on this gender-based violence problem in the countries where we operate. And what we need to see is more attention being paid to this by everybody and better action taken on it. A final question, if I may, on this subject And namely, where do you see this going from here in that a lot of people in the West are starting to look to the rollout of vaccines? You know, the first vaccines have been administrated in the UK in the last week or so. They will be coming to other Western countries soon. You know, what is the roadmap back to something like normality and beyond then to kind of genuine progress towards global development goals? Yeah, well, look, I think it's understandable that the vaccines are being rolled out first in those countries whose scientists and pharmaceutical companies and taxpayers have done the most to 
create them. But pretty quickly, we're going to get to the point where the world faces choices about, okay, you've done the first few percent, five or 10 percent of the world's population. Where do you go next? And the important thing is to avoid this being determined simply by whoever shouts loudest or pays most, because that is not the way to get the fastest path out of the pandemic. There are better allocation strategies essentially drawn from public health risk information and guidance. So there's going to be a huge focus on that. I think over the next two or three months, as we get to the point where where to use the vaccine next is a sort of a relevant question, if you like, because for a while there's going to be not enough vaccine available to meet everybody's needs. I think in the richer countries, although many of them are at the darkest point of the tunnel at the moment, including in parts of Europe, including in the US, I think, they can also see the glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel because of vaccines. And I actually think there's a chance of quite a brisk recovery in many of the better off countries as 2021 progresses. And I think for lots of people, life will actually get back to something much more like normal. I think there will be lasting consequences of all this, but but I think there will be a lot of normalisation in those countries. I'm much more worried about the prospect for the very most fragile countries, because I'm afraid that the COVID hangover for them could be long and harsh unless they get better help. Mm. The vaccine thing is going to need to be carefully handled in those countries because there's two risks, essentially. The first is the vaccine, the COVID vaccine for those countries gets financed at the expense of or instead of things like food security or indeed routine immunisation for things like measles and diphtheria and so on, which have saved so many lives in recent decades. If that happens, the effect, in fact, will be to increase loss of life and suffering, not to reduce it. So care needs to be taken over how the vaccine for them is financed. The second challenge is to do with delivering the vaccine. It's really difficult in these often conflict-affected countries to run all the systems you need for a large-scale vaccination campaign. And we've seen a decline in routine immunisation for measles and the like this year. And that needs to be built up again on the way to the COVID vaccine being available. But that sort of delivery system challenge is a real challenge we need to work hard on. I have one last question for you before we move on, which is, so as I mentioned, you called vaccine nationalism or or said this idea that countries can go it alone with respect to the vaccine, a complete delusion. I guess the thing that I keep getting hung up on is that we're we're living through right now an example of the ways in which the world is interconnected, right? Like we're, we're seeing very clearly in a global pandemic that what happens in one country affects another. Do you ever have the thought that if something like this can't convince countries that they need to approach these challenges multilaterally and not nationalistically, that that nothing will, right? Like if living through this doesn't convince, I don't know, the US or the UK or Germany or, or whoever, that they can't go it alone, what what is it going to take? Well, certainly it's an extremely instructive experience. And I think in the, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that as people get a chance to reflect, they will draw exactly the conclusion that you've drawn. No one is safe from COVID until everyone's safe from it. That's the brutal truth of it. And there are other comparable problems. No part of the planet will be protected from climate change until as a planet as a whole we're dealing with it better next year is going to be a very big year on climate change and it's interesting again the stance president-elect biden has already taken on that there's the important meeting 
to be hosted in the UK in December, which is a really momentous opportunity, basically to do two things. Firstly, stronger agreements on mitigating the future rate of climate change, in other words, keeping the growth in the temperature down. And secondly, a more effective collaboration on adapting to that climate change, which is already baked in. A lot of humanitarian problems around the world these days have climate change as part of the origin. And, and until we get onto a better path in dealing with that, no one should expect those other challenges to go away. I do fundamentally have a degree of confidence that because there's been such a lot of progress over the last 50 years on global development, you know, the average life experience for a human being on the planet now compared with 50 years ago is quite a lot better. And I think people are able to see that and have an ability to learn from that. I do think it's possible to get back on a positive trajectory, but it's not inevitable. And it all depends on what we do. Well, that brings us neatly to a question that we like to call. You ask us. So we have a question this week from our listeners, which is, as we discuss the challenges facing the world in 2021, what do you think is under-discussed? Well, that's a great question. and. I'll give you an answer, but let let me just give you a prelude to the answer, which is on the 6th of January this year, just after the holidays, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, had a meeting with me and my friend, Dr. Tedros, who's the head of the World Health Organization, and one or two other people about pandemics, because we had just taken delivery of this new report flagging the threat of pandemics and, and low levels of preparedness. And we agreed a bunch of things we would do, including a major simulation exercise for the UN to practice dealing with the pandemic. And at the end of that meeting, my friend and colleague, Mike Ryan, who's the ebullient, extrovert, experienced, energetic Irish doctor, who is the head of emergencies at WHO, said to us, look, you, you all ought to know there's this virus in China that we're investigating at the moment. We don't know much about it trying to understand it, but it looks as though it could be significant. And that was the introduction for me to the year of COVID. And of course, the takeaway is there's lots of things that could become big issues in the year ahead, and you never really know which one it's going to be. Coming to a more direct answer to the question, I think that people are not paying enough attention to the loss of important institutions that is in prospect because of the basically the economic effects of the pandemic. So I've just seen a survey of a thousand African civil society organizations, half of whom say they've lost money and are cutting programs. And I saw also a survey from British NGOs, more than half of whose respondents said they weren't sure they would still exist in two years' time. Now, I think the funders ought to be really, really mindful of that because Good institutions are really central to progress. If you want to get anything done, you need an institution, you need an organization, and they're very hard to build and they're easily lost. So I hope the funders will be thoughtful about sustaining their investment in good institutions and those with potential for the future. Yeah, I I agree with what Mark says. And I think that in many ways, 2021 will be the, the kind of the year in which the great comparison that we've seen over 2020 will be kind of will, 
will be borne out in that we've we've watched how different countries have coped differently with the virus, have 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 ended up with different levels of infection and different numbers of deaths. But I think 2021 will be the year in which we see how different models of society and different ways of managing the economy produce not only kind of different responses to the virus, but also something like a, a, an outcome. And I think that those of us, I mean, for example, here in Berlin, it was generally seen that Germany was coping quite well with the coronavirus pandemic. Next year, we'll see whether countries like Germany, for example, end up returning to normal with a degree of competence and with a degree of smoothness that I think all of us are looking for. I mean, how, how do things look from Washington? Yeah, I really, I, I've been really disheartened by the U.S. pandemic response. You know, I think that local and some local and some state governments have tried to step in where they can. I think that the the mad rush at the individual level on toilet paper and on hand sanitizer, and then at the state level on PPE because the government didn't step in, and and how the fact that the government hasn't provided more COVID relief is is worrying to me. I kind of don't know how it's going to go next year, right? I, I what like how the vaccine will be rolled out, how, you know, help for for restaurants and institutions, as, as Mark said, how that will be provided. And I, I guess that the only other thing that I would add is that, and it's not an under-discussed issue per se, because I feel like we talk about it all the time, but if this is a trial run for climate change, I really worry because here you had it happening all at once, right? Like could very clearly see it. And there were still people, there was still this reluctance to do something about it. And so climate change, which is this international emergency that one would think needs this kind of grand global mobilization, I worry that we won't even, at least in my own country, that we won't even see the level of mobilization that we saw for COVID for this other looming crisis. Indeed. All of which brings us to our final segment, which is to look ahead to the next week and say what we think will be the most significant moments. Mark, as our guest, would you like to start us off? What, what will you be looking out for in the next seven days? Well, I have a very personal thing, to be honest with you, which is that I, um, you know, I'm stuck in my little apartment in Manhattan, which I don't really leave very much, but I'm hoping exactly a week from now to climb on an aeroplane and go and see my family in London. So I've got my fingers crossed in the hope all of that works. More professionally, I am watching carefully the all the news on the vaccine rollout. And I'm and then really concerned at the moment about what's going on in Ethiopia, which is the first country I worked in 35 years ago dealing with the famine. And I find it very alarming what's happening in Ethiopia at the moment. So that is a big day-to-day occupation, preoccupation for me right now. This is the, the, the Tigray revolt and the consequences. Yes, the situation in northern Ethiopia, the fighting, which has taken a very alarming ethnic dimension and has been quite protracted. We have hundreds of colleagues, actually, with their families in Tigray, who we haven't been able to reach as the UN for a while. So we're worried about them. But we're, above all, worried about the more than a million people who the UN and the NGOs and others look after. Yeah. And we wish we wish, we wish wish them well. And we also wish you well on your return to the UK. Emily, what are you looking out for next week? For those of you who are not familiar with the US political process, on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December, the Electoral College electors meet. 
yet another fun twist in the U.S. election system, first Monday after the second Wednesday. So that's December 14th this year, which is next week. And so the Electoral College will finally meet. That's not actually the end of this truly never-ending election. Um, the Congress still has to meet, but but this it will be another, you know, for those of you who have been following this, think of it as another shenanigans hurdle that will have made it over. And Jeremy, what will you be watching next week? I will be watching next Thursday when we mark the anniversary of the tragic self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi, the Tunisian vegetable and fruit seller who burned himself to death 10 years ago. And that was seen very much as the start of the Arab Spring. And I think people across the Arab world and beyond will be reflecting on that day and beyond about the what, what many people will see as the missed opportunities of that sort of seemingly bright new, new day. And those of us kind of who wanted the Arab Spring to succeed will be reflecting on what could have been and what might still be in the Arab world. But, you know, a moment to think about democracy, to think about revolution and to think about what could be done in the future. So I'll be paying attention to that. And with that, all that remains is to say thank you so much to Mark Lokok for, for joining us today. Mark, really, thank you for, for taking the time and joining us on the podcast. Thank you for such an interesting conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends, acquaintances, sworn enemies about it. And you can also subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.